it again. And, and just, just to let you know, this is, a, this is a message about the church, and I, I do love the church. And um, it's, it's a holiday weekend. We can be a little less formal. So at the end of the message, we're going to just invite everybody to come on up. Anybody who wants to, you don't have to, you don't want to, but we're going to invite everyone up at the end. And we're going to sing How Great Is Our God, because he is great. And um, that, was, that wasn't my favorite experience, um, but, but I, I do want to say thanks. I love this church. And it's a... Thanks, Steve. I have, a, I have a great job. I have a great life. And I'm part of a great church. And I just want to thank you. When, when we came here, we got in our van 20 years ago. The kids were 12, 10, 8, and 2. And we took two weeks driving across the country. Um, we really didn't know anybody here hardly at all. But we knew the Lord was calling us to be here. And I don't know how any pastor could ever be welcomed more warmly into a congregation than, than we were uh, then. And these 20 years, we've, sure, we've had plenty of difficulties and trials as, a, as individuals and as a, as a congregation, but God has been with us. And thank you for the way that you've loved me and my family. Thank you for your just ongoing encouragement. Thank you for the way you pray. I, I just regularly encounter uh, those here who just communicate that you're praying for me and for the, for the other elders. And I just can't tell you how much that means. And I just, I, I love you and I, and I love being here. And I don't know about 20 more years, but, um, but I really, sincerely, I hope that the most fruitful years of, of my own life and ministry and of this congregation are ahead of us. And I look forward to walking into that together with you. I look forward and I just pray for the opportunity to be able to have this passing on of the baton from, from me and this generation of pastors to the, to the next generation. And I'm excited about the future that God has for us here in Fairfax. And I hope, church, that we can run together with endurance, the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Christ. So, um, so thanks. Um, so we're continuing in our series in Romans, as, as Paul mentioned. This passage this morning is the middle of three passages that that are about being a welcoming church. That's the language of the of the passage. And so we're in Romans fourteen, verses thirteen to twenty three. And Amy Supis is going to read the passage for us this morning. So Amy, come on and read. Thanks. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be sco- spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink, wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I want to pray. Um, Next week we're going to get to Romans 15.6, and there's a a sweet prayer in there. Excuse me, 15.5. There's a, a sweet prayer in there that that we really want to learn. We're going to actually give you a card next week so that you can hang out of that prayer and bring it into your life. But I just want to pray that this passage of Scripture is intended to give us a vision for what God's church can be as a, as a welcoming church and a house that God is, is present in and building. And so I just, I'm just going to just pray for us from Romans 15, 5 and 6. And now, God, you are the God of endurance and encouragement, and we pray that you would grant each one of us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together with one voice we may glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In order to understand Scripture and appropriate it, bring it into our lives, we've, we've got to do some traveling. It, in order to understand a book that was written 2,000 or more years ago, you've got you've to get yourself out of Fairfax and go back to the original scene and setting, understand what was happening there, and then appropriate what God has for us and bring that back. So there's some bridge crossing to do. And this passage is, is particularly uh, in need of some, some work to, to cross the bridges to understand what's happening uh, back in, in this scene in the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. So I want to just start off by giving you a couple of what-ifs that I hope might give you a flavor for the kind of experiences that some people in this church were having um, when, when this was written. So, so here's a couple of experiences that we might have that maybe will help uh, give us a, a sense of, of what was going on back there. So imagine that you're recruited onto a, a ministry team here, and in December you find out the big ministry team planning meeting has been scheduled. You're going to be looking at all of 2020, and it's must-do. Everybody needs to be there, and the, the meeting is scheduled for December 25 at 10 in the morning. Christmas morning, you're having the big ministry planning meeting. How would you feel about that decision? How about this? You're a new Christian. You're coming out of a life of, of drunkenness and, 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 and uh, way too much alcohol. So you've been going to AA. You're really making progress. And you're invited over to dinner with a group of other uh, church members from the church. And when you arrive, you're offered a margarita. And when, when you see that and, and are offered that, you say, you know, th- thank you, but I really, I, I don't drink. I've got this history. I'm going to AA. And, and the person who's holding the margarita laughs and says, hey, everybody, come on around. Listen to, listen to this story. Isn't this great? This is kind of funny, isn't it? Here, take a Bud Light instead. How would you feel about that experience? Or how about this one? You go to a Bible study, and 
you discover that everybody there is using the King James Version. And you're teased for not having the inspired version with you and then pressured not so subtly to put your Bible away and use the King James Version that's being pushed upon you, put in your hands. How would you feel about that? How would you feel if days that are really important to you weren't treated with such importance by other people in your church? How would you feel if your conscience was being pressured into being violated over something like alcohol? How would you feel if something that really shouldn't be that important, what version of the Bible you're reading from, seemed to be elevated to a place of being an essential thing in a Bible study? Church can be an uncomfortable place, can't it? Things like this actually do happen in churches because churches are collections of people from different cultures, people with different experiences, people with different consciences, sensitivities, people of different ages and approaches to life. And so we get together on a Sunday morning like this, and I don't know, but I could pretty well guess there's probably some different ideas about worship music style here this morning or clothing style or baptism or there might be just possibly some differing ideas in this room about climate change or vaccinations or I could go on to any of a number of other things. What this passage of scripture puts before us is this. How can we get along as Christians? How do we get along in church, not just tolerating each other, but actually loving one another, uniting for the glory of God, and doing it in a way that doesn't require everyone to become clones and believe and behave exactly in the same ways, especially in peripheral matters? See, the vision that's before us in this section of scripture is a vision of a group of people who unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ, who unite around a vision for the glory of God, being one people for God's glory, united in the essentials and providing liberty and some freedom in the secondary issues, the non-essentials. Today's passage gives us some timeless principles that empower us to be what the passage calls a welcoming church. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We want to be a welcoming church, a church that welcomes one another, where we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. So to get there, We've got to go back to Rome and understand this situation that was going on. It seems a little obscure. It's distant to us. But God has preserved this in his word so that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our ability to be a welcoming church. So I've got some, I've got some helps out here on this table. And I'm going to try to, to explain as best as I can what was happening in the church here in Rome. We, we think we can reconstruct pretty, with pretty good confidence the, the situation that was, that was taking place back there. And Kenneth explained this uh, last week. If you weren't here, I just want to re review this. 
this briefly. So in Rome, uh, in, in the middle of the first century, the Jewish people were all expelled by the emperor. They were blamed for being troublemakers and they were all expelled. A few years later, the emperor died and the Jewish people were welcomed back. Now, amongst those Jewish people, most likely were Jewish people who'd become Christians. So you can imagine then what happens in your church if all the Jewish Christians have to leave and they're gone for five, six, seven, eight, ten years. Well, then the positions of leadership, the elders, the preachers, the, the, the small group leaders, there aren't any Jewish Christians. There's the Gentile Christians are all going to fill all those spots. And then all of a sudden, all the Jewish Christians come back. Okay, so that's kind of probably the situation that's going on here. Now, I want you to picture what might happen one, uh, one day when they get together on the Lord's Day to, to worship, just like we're do doing here. They didn't have buildings like this. They met in people's homes. And often the churches would get together and they'd have a, a love feast, a, a, a meal together as, as part of it. So imagine the situation. Uh, the, the host is there. They're having, a, they're having a meal and the host has laid out the food. And who knew that Wendy's catered back in the first century in Rome. But you've got bacon cheeseburgers out there available for everybody to have. And, uh, and there's some nice uh, glasses of wine available uh, a, a, as well. And so imagine yourself as a Jewish Christian who sees that and struggles with that, saying, what do I do now? Because maybe you're still wanting to keep those dietary laws that are right there in Leviticus. And you don't want to eat anything unclean. And you don't know, has that meat been offered to idols? And you do know that bacon is unclean to start with. Or what about this wine? Has this wine been offered to the gods, as it so often was in Rome, and so then would be unclean to you. And so you're struggling with this, and, and while, while you're struggling with what to do, they have their announcements. They had announcements in Rome, just like we have announcements here, right? And one of the announcements is, hey, next week we're going to have the annual church chariot race, and we're going to hold it on Thursday. And you start thinking, Thursday, that's Passover. How can you have the annual church chariot race on Passover? That's a really special day to me. And the result very likely would be, as a church member, that you would struggle with that. You would stumble with that. You might be angry with your Gentile brothers and sisters for not being sensitive to things that are important to you. Or you might begin to partake of things that you really know you shouldn't, but you do it out of pressure because everybody else is doing it. And you don't want to make waves and cause trouble. And so you stumble as a result of this behavior. These people that are doing this are what the passage calls weak in faith. Now, as Kenneth mentioned last week, weak in faith doesn't mean weak in trusting in Jesus, weak in being justified. It means that they are weak in carrying out some of the implications of the faith. It's not a pejorative statement. It's a statement about their consciences, and it's saying that that. There's some freedom that's available in Christ that they're not able to walk into at that particular time. So what happens when you've got these two groups of people under one roof? What happens when you've got people together in church and then there's friction and there's tension? What happens? What happens next? You know what happens in the world we live in when situations like this come about, don't you? So often in a in a business, in a family setting sometimes, in a, in a, in a team, in different groups of, 
of, of people. Well, the people who are in positions of power just use it to put down, to insult, to, to marginalize people who disagree with them or the people that don't have power are resentful or, or take revenge when they get a chance or backbite and sta- stab, uh, backstab others. So what happens in the church? Can the church be different? And the good news of this passage, the glory of this passage is, yes, the church can be different. The church can be different than every other institution and organization on earth. Why? Because the church is God's house. God is there. We heard this last week. Welcome these people because God has welcomed them. We heard last week that each one of us will give account to God. We saw in today's passage, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Christ is the cornerstone of this building. We heard this morning that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So how then, with God as the center of this church, Christ is the cornerstone, the Holy Spirit indwelling this temple. How do church members get along with one another when they have differing ideas about lots of things? Well, here's what we heard last week. First, welcome one another. Don't judge one another. Don't despise one another. Second, be fully convinced of your own views on these things, but don't use them like clubs on one another. Right? Don't judge one another. And then this morning, we're adding one more. So last week, we had welcome, don't judge. This week, uh, and, and be fully convinced. This week, just this simple, just this simple command, this simple call, the simple claim from God, show self-restraint. For the rest of this message, I'm just going to be unpacking this call to Christians like us, especially those with strong consciences or a stronger faith, to love the weaker brothers, to restrain ourselves for the sake of the conscience and the spiritual health of other Christians. And then next week, there's this one more passage. We'll see how this brings this vision of this glorious house united in worship and mission. So that'll be next week's passage. So this morning, just a very simple thing. God's word to us this morning is simply this. Show self-restraint. Show self-restraint. The, the main point to walk away with from, from the message this morning is this. In a welcoming church, the members will show self-restraint for the sake of others. Here it is. Here's God's word to us this morning. In a welcoming church, the members will show self-restraint for the sake of others. So let's just un, unpack this. What does this self-restraint look like for the sake of others? Let's ask three questions. When? And then why and then how? When do we show self-restraint? So this passage introduces us to what Kenneth referred to last week as disputable matters. Verse 1 of the passage says, um, Welcome the one who is weak in faith, but not to quarrel over opinions. That, that little phrase, quarrel over opinions, is translated in the New International Version, uh, uh, disputable matters. Don't, don't quarrel over disputable Matters. There are, uh, we all have opinions about lots of things. And in church, there are some things that we need to be of the same opinion about and some things where there's liberty to be of differing opinions about. In church, there are essentials and there are non-essentials. In the Christian life, there are primary issues and there are secondary issues. There are matters about which we cannot negotiate or compromise, and there are matters that allow for a diversity of belief or practice. 
There are essentials like the deity of Christ. We can't compromise on that. Or the authority of Scripture or justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and in Christ alone. And, and there are non-essentials. We just saw this morning, there are these Jewish and Gentile differences that, that Paul doesn't feel the need to resolve. He's, he's, he, he sees these things can coexist in the same congregation. We heard Kenneth talk last week about uh, uh, non-essential differences that come about through our pre-conversion experiences as he talked about his own experience with, with rock and roll and the, and the need to set that aside in his life. We've got here, uh, and, and you can travel to different places and experience differences based on ethnicity or cultural differences. Being on time, for example. In some Latin American countries, a meeting that starts at 6 o'clock will be approached very differently than a meeting that starts at 6 o'clock in Northern Virginia. Not necessarily one right or wrong, just different approaches about which people can disagree. But what happens when people get together like that in the same church, right? Differences about Christian doctrine or how to live the Christian life. Kenneth mentioned last week the education of children. Different approaches about alcohol or the millennium. Are you amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, or different thoughts about baptism or different thoughts about life in general, tattoos, guns, gun rights, gun control, politics. If I just say President Trump, that's probably enough to reveal differences immediately, right? So that's the world we live in and here we are in church together. For Leslie and I, we had this experience with our own consciences when we first got married, we had this TV, just like everybody did. And I was an accomplished TV watcher. I watched Hogan's Heroes millions of times in high school. And Leslie was an accomplished TV watcher. And we found what would happen was when we'd come home from work, we'd have some dinner, and then we'd feel like we needed to veg out in front of the TV because we were tired. And after several months of this, we just realized, you know, this really isn't productive we're just sitting here staring at the TV and it isn't actually offering the rest that we would hope that it was offering. We don't feel better when we're done. We just turn it off. So we put it, we literally unplugged it and put it in the closet. We didn't do TV for a long time. And then we started loosening up a little bit and there was one point where we had some missionary friends that were leaving and they gave us their TV. Now, you're desperate for a TV when, when the TV that you have is given to you by missionaries. This TV... <laughs> This TV was like this big. You have laptop screens that are bigger than this TV. And, and we put it in, the, in, in our bedroom in the closet, behind the closet sliding door. So we could open the sliding door and watch this little TV every once in a while. And then over time, we loosened up a little more and, and we got a, a kind of a, we were kind of back to where we started regular TV. And then when our kids were in high school, I realized, you know, I need to find ways to connect with these kids. And I felt like I was sort of losing connection points with them and looking for ways to connect. And I realized these kids love movies. And so then we got this giant TV with the surround sound and everything. And so like we just, the pendulum went woo this way and then woo this way. But that's how these things work in our lives, don't they? This is a non-essential. This is a conscience issue for us. And, and so... What we want to do as we're together is we want to say, and this is a beautiful saying that I've, I've, I've heard said over the years, you may have heard this too, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Isn't that nice? In essentials, unity, 
in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, that sounds great. It's just like, how exactly do you live that out, right? But we have to have some way to sort out what are the non-essentials and what are the essentials. Because what happens is, if essentials, if primary issues get demoted to becoming secondary issues, the church loses its moral authority. Right? If, if the inspiration and authority of Scripture is demoted to be a negotiable, non-essential item that we can choose to agree or disagree about, the ch- church is going to lose its moral authority. Uh, on the flip side, if non-essential, secondary items get promoted to become primary or essential items, well, then you create a test of orthodoxy that God hasn't created, and you begin to bind people's consciences to something that Scripture doesn't bind people to. So, for example, I mentioned the millennium earlier. If, if you make it a requirement that everybody in your church has an amillennial position or a premillennial position or a postmillennial position, I think then you're, you're promoting a non-essential to an essential. And you get the wrong test of orthodoxy. And in both cases, you know what happens? The gospel just gets pushed off to the side. The gospel gets marginalized and and eclipsed by other things. So, this passage, is it about essentials or non-essentials? I find this a fascinating passage. Why doesn't this spiritual leader, Paul, just tell these weaker brothers... Guys, get over it. Enjoy your hamburgers. Have a glass of wine. It's okay. Do what everybody else is doing. I find this interesting that he doesn't do this because he's more than willing to give commands, isn't he? Hey, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's non-negotiable. You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Non-negotiables. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Those are commands. He's very willing to give commands at other times. But here the command is really different, isn't it? You know what the command is? The command is welcome one another. Don't judge one another. Hey, you have different opinions. You should both be convinced about what you believe. And stronger believers, you should restrain yourselves for the sake of others. I want you to see what's happening here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's counsel to us is that a healthy church will be a place where under one roof there's more than one opinion about non-essential matters. The kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking, right? The kingdom of God isn't a matter of worship music styles, or politics, or which way you choose to educate your child. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, being brought into right standing with God, peace, through faith in Christ you have peace with God, and joy in the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in the believer and lives in the temple of the church. In a welcoming church, the members will show self-restraint for the sake of others in these non-essential areas. That's when. Second, why? Why? Here we get to motives, right? Why? You know, some people love a good fight. Some people love to stir things up. Some people just love to 
lob a grenade out there. You, you know people like that, or maybe you're like that, you're in a group of people like that, and there's always somebody who just, just lobs that grenade out, lays the bait in the trap, and then just waits to see what's going to happen, right? You've seen this on TV interviews where an interviewer just puts out this impossibly provocative question that's guaranteed to stir things up. You see this on Facebook constantly and other social media. Others aren't wired that way at all. Others don't like the conflict, but may still retreat into judging, griping, or tearing down others. There are some who would never confront someone directly, but might post something anonymously. It's very derogatory, very judgmental. You know, in a room like this, we've probably got both kinds of people and others as well, right? Back in Romans 2, we were reminded that pretty much everybody on planet Earth is an accomplished and experienced and effective judger of other people. Every person is pretty good at evaluating other people and finding fault in them and in some points emerging morally on top. What happens when people who are skilled at evaluating others and finding themselves superior are converted? What happens when people like that become Christians? Well, they get together in church and there's instant harmony and it's a love fest for eternity, right? That's how it happens. That's what's happening here, right? Well, maybe not so much. And that's why we need passages of Scripture like this. So, I want to just read for you Again, a couple of verses from what we just heard. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. Note the call to action. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy. Did you hear that? Second time. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what He eats. Paul has a Jewish background. He knows the dietary laws, the clean and unclean foods. He has personally come to the conviction that it's okay to eat any food. He says in verse 14, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He says, right, Here, that everything is indeed clean, but he recognizes and respects the consciences of people who still are living within those dietary laws and don't and aren't willing to eat unclean food, food that is unclean to them. And he says, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Did you notice how often the word stumble shows up in this passage? Three different times. Never put a stumbling block in the way of another. It's wrong to make another stumble 
It's good to not eat meat or drink or anything that causes your brother to stumble. Do you know what a stumbling block is? You know what it means to make someone stumble? I got a really good illustration of this, sad illustration of this, but a powerful one. Just this week I was thinking about these things. Leslie and I were home one evening. We're, we're, we're in our bedroom. She's got a bunch of things in her hands, and she goes out to take them to another room in the house. Our room, the light was on in there, but the hallway was dark. And as she walks out, I hear this crash. And I go out, and here she is on the ground holding her knees, and our 80-pound pitch black Labrador retriever was lying in a place where he never lies in the dark, and it was impossible to see him. And so with, uh, she had, I mean, no idea he was there. And so she hit that 80-pound stumbling block, and she went down. Thankfully, she's okay. But boy, did it bring home to me. Do you know what it means to cause a brother or sister to stumble? It means the two of you are walking along together following the Lord, and you do something that causes that person to end up on the ground. Paul says you're no longer walking in love. You're walking along together, and it's like you, you push brother or sister next to you over into the ditch. Who would want to live that way? Who would want to do that? And yet, we have the power to do that. If we don't understand the non-essentials and respect people's consciences. So what changes our behavior is love. Why would we do this? Why would we restrain ourselves for the sake of others? It's love. I want you to just hear the words of verse 15. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. O-F-W-C-D. Do not destroy the O-F-W-C-D, the one for whom Christ died. Some years ago, I was engaged in a series of tense conversations with someone that I was very unhappy with this person. I thought this person was acting in a wrong and immature way. I thought they were sinning. I thought they were hard-hearted and, and not teachable. And they probably thought the same things about me. And so, so we were in this just series of, of, of dialogues that were not profitable. They were angry and tense and they weren't going anywhere. And somehow... I got a hold of these five words. One for whom Christ died. Somehow the Holy Spirit just worked in my heart through these things. And I began to look at that brother with those five words in my mind. In fact, there were times when I would actually, when I was writing something out, instead of using that person's name, I would write, brother for whom Christ died. And do you know what happened? my heart started to change. I, I thought, Jesus hung on the cross and died for this person and will I treat him with arrogance, self-righteousness, impatience? It just, it humbled me. It stirred up love. It leveled the playing field. I tell you, if you can get a hold of this, it's a game changer in your relationships. It's a game changer. Are there people right now in your life, you're just, uh, that's it, I've had it. Enough. 
change already. Come on, get with the program. If you have people that you find yourself consistently irritated with, angry at, frustrated over, if this is a brother or sister in Christ, appropriate these five words. One for whom Christ died. John Stott says, Did Christ love him enough to die for him, and shall we not love him enough to refrain from wounding his conscience? Did Christ sacrifice himself for his well-being, and shall we assert ourselves to his harm? Did Christ die to save him, and shall we not care if we destroy him? This house, under God, can be a house filled with love that promotes unity and harmony in relationships, even when we don't agree about everything. Isn't that awesome? What an opportunity the gospel creates for us. We are each one for whom Christ died. There's the why. Finally, the how. How do we do this? How does it work out? What do we do when we disagree about non-essentials? I'm struck by how differently Paul handles this than I, I think I would have. I think I would have looked in this situation and said, you know, I need to get together with these, these Jewish Christians and just say, hey, brothers and sisters, let, let me just, let's just open the Bible. Let me give you the Christian view of eating and drinking and days. Just get on board with the liberty Christ has for you. And I know Paul believed that he could do that. I know he believed in that liberty in his own life. But the Holy Spirit's counsel through him is this, let the strong show self-restraint for the sake of the weak. Preserve two ideas intentionally under the roof of the church. Do you know what this does? This is guaranteed to make church uncomfortable. Did you just join the church recently? Welcome to the church of the uncomfortable, right? Real church is going to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be actually uncomfortable. I wonder if this is why we end up with churches that are actually not so uncomfortable because everybody's just the same. Everybody has the same ideas. Like here's the cool worship church or here's the homeschooling church or here's the serve the poor church or here's the whatever church. And actually in saying this, I know right here this morning there are numerous individuals seated, sitting here, seated here this morning, and you, you as you're here this morning are acutely aware that in many ways most of the other people here are not like you. You're different for one reason or another. And yet you're here being uncomfortable in a vision to be under one roof as one people united in Christ. And I want to thank you for your love for Christ and your vision for the church that brings you into a church where you're in some way in the minority. I, I respect and love each one that lives that way. Here's this call to action. In a welcoming church, the members will show self-restraint for the sake of others. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. Let us pursue what makes for love, for peace, and mutual upbuilding. Just a couple of quick examples. I was talking to some friends about this this week, and one guy said, you know, I've got a group of friends. We like to have a cigar every once in a while. And so we do that. But within that group of friends, there's one guy that's had an experience of of smoking a lot of weed in the past. And so if he joins us for that, it, it just stirs up that appetite for weed. So when he's there, we don't do that. I, that's, that's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. Pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Another friend had some people over for dinner. He likes to have a glass of wine. They were offering a glass of wine. One couple, first time to, to the house, said, no, no thanks, we don't drink. Just drew them out a little bit. Found out they both had really bad experiences with alcohol in their families and in their own lives. When they came to faith in Christ, they, they left alcohol behind. And so he kindly said, would you be more comfortable if the rest of us didn't drink while you're here because we will gladly put it away. That's what love looks like. That's what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And so we just want to examine ourselves this morning. Just a few questions. As we're in the presence of the Lord here this morning, let's just ask ourselves, is God calling Is God calling me to show self-restraint for the sake of another believer? Is there something even right now that the Holy Spirit is just bringing to mind? Maybe we want to just ask, am I being a stumbling block to another Christian in some way? If I am, am I okay with that? Does that bother me? Do I excuse this by just thinking, well, that's my personality or that's my job to stir things up? Maybe we want to ask, am I judging or belittling another believer, condemning a brother or sister over a non-essential, a disputable matter. Or maybe we want to ask, am I one of those people who is grieving others, but no one will tell me because I'm impossible to talk to about things like that? You know, the glory of the gospel is that change is possible for all of us. And the glory of the gospel is that God is building a house where people with very different views and lots of non-essential issues find unity and harmony together with one voice praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In a welcoming church, the members will show self-restraint for the sake of others. And so, once upon a time, a bunch of people got together and heard the gospel. They became devoted followers of Jesus, and they formed a church where they had endless fun and fellowship and fulfilling relationships And they all lived happily ever after. Welcome to the fairy tale. Now, in Redeeming Grace Church, what happens when we get together? What's your vision for life together in God's church? You can live out the Christian life pretty anonymously, can't you? Even going to church. But God calls us into relationships that make us uncomfortable. I appreciate it. What it was kind words from Paul he said about me earlier and I do love the church. I fell in love with the church long before I was a pastor. It's not part of my vocation. I love the church because it's a house where God is gathering a multi ethnic, multi generational diverse group of people united around Jesus Christ. I love the church because it's a place where people get together and and make the glory of the invisible God visible to the world around. I want to be a part of a church like that. And I'm glad for the way this church lives like that. And I'm hopeful for the ways we can grow in being like that. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself living out life, you're just, 
on this treadmill. You go to work, you go to the store, you take a day off, you take a vacation, you do the family thing or whatever, and you're wondering, where's the transcendence? Where's the meaning? What's it all about? Oh, come to Jesus Christ and come be part of a family and a group of people, this, this gathering that's eternal, that transcends this age to the next. In a welcoming church, the members will show self-restraint for the sake of others and for the glory of God. This is God's call to us. Let us embrace it. And, and, and the ultimate ex- result of this isn't what we get out of this, but the glory that God gets out of it. So if the worship team would come up, I think it'd be great to just close by singing How Great Is Our God. And if you'd stand, please, that would be great. And we do this from time to time. If, if, if you're new, this is a no-pressure moment. But we are a family. We're a group of people united in the gospel. So sometimes it's nice to just stand closer to one another and be able to hear one another sing. And so if you'd like to, just come on up while we sing. Feel free to just fill in the, the area up here. And anybody who wants to, we'll, we'll stand and sing together of the greatness of our great God.